Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. All right, we're on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of uh, Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, uh, CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and we have with us today a Memphian who uh, needs no introduction. He's a Memphian every day. In fact, you could say he's a daily Memphian. Boy, that was tortured, but uh, Eric Barnes, the uh, publisher of the Daily Memphian. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you again for being here. Um, I guess you're you're the publisher of the Daily Memphian and uh, the Memphis Daily News. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. T- for some reason, I'm the CEO of the Daily Memphian. We, in non work anyway. So that's my. But I'm effectively the publisher. Yes, and I continue to run the old uh, Daily News, which also has some community papers around the state. Right. Right. Well, very good. Very good. Well, again, uh, Eric has been uh, a fixture in the Memphis. Um, journalism scene for many years. Uh, did uh, Eric, did you did you start your life in Memphis or are you a transplant to Memphis? I'm a transplant. I mean, it is definitely my adopted home. I've been here, I think I figured out it's 25 years this summer. And um, so, but I grew up in uh, Tacoma, Washington, south of Seattle, went to school in Connecticut and lived in New York and went to grad school in New York and then made my way here uh, again, 24 or 25 years ago. I had a great aunt who, who lived in Tacoma and I went out oh, there yeah. several times and um, really uh, enjoy, I had t- two summers out there and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's all changed so much. I mean, when I was there, it was kind of a big blue collar town. Now it's actually, it's really quite nice. And uh, so it's, I still have family and friends all up in the Northwest. So, and I grew up, I spent a lot of time in Alaska and um, but again, this is definitely my adopted home at some point. I don't know. I always liked it here, but then I sort of, went from, from being a transplant to, a, to this is my place. So journalism is your career now. Uh, was, that, was that a lifelong dream? No, <laughs> not at all. So no, I mean, I, I say that somewhat jokingly. I mean, all, I think once I always worked in some form, you know, down to junior high, I was on the student paper and I was also always on the yearbook staff at whatever school I was in and, and enjoyed that um, and enjoyed as much as anything, just the, the sort of process of publishing. So it wasn't really my goal to be a reporter. Um, and actually when I got out of college, what I really wanted to do was just write and write books and write fiction, but I had, and I have done that, but um, it's a terrible way to make money. And particularly when I had a lot of student loan debt, um, I had to do something and I was roughly skilled enough to, to be a reporter. So I got a job, I mean, this was 1990, uh, and I got a job at the Old Saybrook Pictorial Gazette. Uh, I covered Deep River, Essex, and Chester, three very small towns. And, um, and just like, you know, that, and did that, was an active reporter for a year and then have been in publishing since 1990, sometimes on the more journalistic side, sometimes on the business side, um, now kind of in, you know, I've sort of in the, a little bit of everything at this point. 
So what was, who were your influences uh, that inclined your uh, vocation towards uh, publishing? Um, you know, I think, I think I liked publishing overall. And again, I've been in, you know, book publishing and, and magazine publishing directories. I was at Towery Publishing here in Memphis for seven years um, and got, you know, started the, was part of starting the internet division there. And I've always loved just the act of it, all the things that come together, the technology and the, the writing and the creativity. I think some of it uh, comes from, you know, my, my, my mother and stepfather owned a construction company and publishing. And so I worked there a lot after schools and, and after school and in summers. And I was around a lot of sort of blue collar people. And I liked the sort of, it was not an esoteric uh, process. You, you would build, whether it was a business directory or it was a website, uh, now, you know, a little bit of podcast, whatever. I like that whole process. And I like that you get a finished product. And I think that always fit well with my, my bit of construction sort of um, roots. Um, and then I always enjoyed writing and reading. And again, I, I just, all I wanted to do was write books, but you couldn't, I couldn't make any money doing that. And um, journalism at, at, at one point was a really good career. In the last five, 10 years, it's become less of a, uh, I mean, I've made a good career out of it. And I think all the people who work for us have, but it's a much more difficult industry than it used to be. Don't you think it, um, I mean, from the outside looking in, journalism to me looks like it's it's a growth industry, but just in a different way than uh, journalists today don't look like journalists did 20 years ago, but there's, yes. there are lots of them. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's, it's definitely, um, uh, there are kind of a tale of two cities. I mean, if you look at nationally, uh, journalism is exploding and whether it's, you know, online or it's traditional newspapers, you know, the New York Times being the biggest and you know, growing and really having cracked the code on subscriptions and profitability, uh, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, I mean, then the cable news channels and all kinds of incredible stuff going on, or not so incredible, but as a business, it's incredibly active and there's a lot happening nationally. On the local level, it's a disaster. And it's, it's truly, I mean, it really is just awful. I mean, I think the numbers, you know, I have my kind of standard lines, but when they're true, I think uh, it's, in the last 10 years, you know, almost 2,500 newspapers, local newspapers have closed. Um, it's something like 30 plus thousand local journalists have lost their jobs. There was a number, and this has been a terrible year for, for most professions, but you know, midway through the year, there were something like 6,000 journalism jobs at the local level had been cut. Um, it, it's a terrible business and um, that part is bad and bad for, and so then there's this rise at the local level of all kinds of interesting news and information outlets, but, you know, that traditional coverage of city hall, county commission, the school board, the business community, in most um, uh, small, even mid-sized cities, that the number of people doing, you know, objective, um, thorough reporting is shrinking uh, astronomically, and, and it's really a bad thing. Uh, I recently had Holly Whitfield on the uh, oh, yeah. on the program, and we talked about this um, uh, kind of the, the in a different context, obviously. But that this this whole idea of local news, um, you know, disappearing for lack of a better way of putting it, and yeah. I, and I'd be interested in your take on this. I remember back in the '90s when the uh, internet was becoming a thing, you know, late right. '90s, early 2000s. I really thought that the newspapers would own the internet 
because yeah. they had all this content and everybody was looking for content. And of course, the business models uh, didn't line up. Why do you think? Why do you think that was? And is that what? If you could get in a time machine and go back, do you think there was a way to to mitigate that, or was that just the way it was going to be? Yeah, newspapers do um, a lot of complaining about how they were the victims of the change and how you know everybody took their classified and took their real estate listings and and took their advertising. And there is some truth to that. But in, in, the reality is they weren't victims. They made a, a series of really, really bad decisions um, where they didn't invest in technology. So you know their platforms for classifieds and home listings just weren't as good as the other ones. And they took for granted that they'd always had job listings, for instance, and always would. And there was a lot of arrogance in that. I mean, local newspapers made big, big money for their owners for many, many decades. And I think as that technology came along, there was this resistance to it that came in part, and I'm not talking about anyone specifically, I'm just saying as an industry, there yeah. was a lot of sort of arrogance that, well, that's just a fad, that'll never touch us. That, And meanwhile, yeah, AOL ultimately didn't take down newspapers, but AOL begat a whole lot of other companies that began to take down newspapers business side. And then on the information side, Newspapers made really an absolutely idiotic decision, which was to make all of their content free. And for most newspapers, had never been free, right? I mean, they we had bought the Commercial Appeal or the New York Times or the you know Old Saber Pictorial Gazette. That's what we did. Um, it was a quarter. It was fifty cents. And I think the the big news, the big websites that needed content love the idea that all that news was free. That then, you know, gave rise to blogging and people who could comment and, but basically they were all commenting on news articles, be they local or, or national. And the, the kind of traditional, even though newspapers took a hit as they started losing advertising and losing classified advertising and so on, they were still making a ton of money off their print editions. And so they were like, well, we can give away our content for free. And they did for a decade by and large. And even if they put a paywall up, it was really kind of a half-hearted effort and you, you really didn't have to pay or, you know, no, even the New York Times, I mean, for a decade, gave its content away effectively for free. And so um, then they woke up and they woke up because they were cutting and cutting and cutting and the newsrooms, I mean, and again, I don't like to pick as much as people think I like to pick on the commercial appeal. I really don't. Um, I, I, I hate what has happened to the journalists there and, and so on, but they've gone in what, 20 years from over 250 people in that newsroom to right around 27 or 28. And that's, that's a typical story around the country for local news. And it's because they, I think, and I think others think the biggest, there was a lot of self-inflicted wounds, the biggest being not charging for news. And again, they could have given away some news for free and you know, there's lots of hybrid models and all that's happening now, but it's kind of late in the game business-wise that suddenly we're telling people after 10 or 15 years, you know what, you got to pay for news. And people are mad or, you know, we get some of that because we've had a paywall from day one and people are like, well, no, but this should be free. It should be a public service. I'm like, well, yeah, we don't, we don't have, you know, 35 volunteers in our newsroom. We have 35 reporters and journalists who are paid. So um, yeah, I think, I think newspapers hurt themselves badly. Now I remember back in, in those days, uh, talking to people like Mike Fleming and um, uh, 
uh, I think maybe even Jeff Calkins and some others who, who you know, this is circa 99, 2000, 2002. And the, the argument there was, well, the consuming public expects material on the internet to be free. Yeah. And I, I really do think there was a, there was a certain validity in that, in that it was the timing of the newspapers getting into the internet maybe was a little off from that standpoint. Yeah. Uh, kind of similar to uh, Sears. I often think, you know, Sears had, the, uh, you know, you think of our Sears Tower and every city had yeah. one. I mean, uh, they, they were just a little bit off in timing in terms, they could have been uh, Amazon before Amazon was Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Crosstown right now. I mean, that's where I live. And you know, you walk around this place and you realize the massiveness of it, that there was a million square feet of really like almost ship on demand type um, fulfillment going back to what this, the first part of this building was built in the twenties. Um, yeah, they missed it, you know? And I think newspapers did the same thing. They, they had all these opportunities and they had this lock on, um, on information and they had very, very loyal readers and they kind of just let it trickle away because they were so, once they got hooked on, they got their people hooked on free content, they were afraid to put a paywall in front of them. And, but you look at the, the papers that did put up paywalls and these are national papers like Wall Street Journal and, and Financial Times, they never ran into the wall of the sort that even the New York Times ran into. Um, or you look at um, uh, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette over in Little Rock. Uh, the owner there, Walter Hussman, is a really visionary guy. Uh, he's kind of the traditional news, local newspaper owner. And he did not want to give away content for free from day one. He just said, I don't understand that. So, um, and they did pretty much the same thing on the Chattanooga Times Free Press. And if you, there's a reason that the Chattanooga Times Free Press is the biggest newsroom, the biggest paper in the state now. I mean, it's got a newsroom of 60 or so. And that's because I think, I mean, they, I think would say, they never gave away their content for free. They gave some away, but they didn't just have a whole free, go for it. This will be great for us, you know, because you'll share it and you'll post it and you'll send it around. They didn't do that. They have, they have a huge, I can't remember the numbers, their print circulation every day is huge still. It's hardly, it's hardly been reduced over the last decade. It's, it's really remarkable because they held fast on that. Well, you know, uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, and I'm not even, I'm not even sure we're at a at a a point where we we really have hindsight to see how this whole thing is going to play out. Yeah, uh, agreed. I mean, there is uh, there is a kind of, I mean, a lot of um, various news industry groups and you know uh, gatherings, all of them by Zoom now. It used to be those last, you know end of last year and the first part of this year before the pandemic, I was flying almost every other week, it seemed like, talking to other news people. And um, there is a kind of desperate feeling of, oh my gosh, we've, we really are, I mean, with McClatchy going bankrupt with the constant sort of merging and acquiring of chains of newspapers by hedge funds. Um, not all hedge funds are bad, but you know, some of the ones that have deep, deep roots into local news now are, are pretty predatory in nature. And there is a fear that it's, it's, it ain't coming back, you know, and it's only how much, how much bleeding can we stop? And that was pre COVID. And again, sir, you know, at some point newspapers, print, pr traditional print advertising in newspapers in the summer, 
industry-wide was down 50 to 70, sometimes even 80%. Some of it's come back, but not all of it has come back. And, and it, so again, you, and a lot of people look at their print paper and they go, well, that, that's kind of a shell of its former self. Well, it, it may be, but it's been making a lot of money for the owners, even the, the, the thin papers we see these days in most cities. But even that is now taking this huge hit. So I, I don't know what it looks like. And I don't claim that we you know, have it all figured out. Um, you know, we're doing well, but it's a very, very difficult business. And we've got a long ways to go to get to where we think we need to be. Well, um, if you would talk a little bit about the, 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 the need for an online publication that that you and others saw uh, several years ago, and how did you go from, you know, kind of the the aspirational talk of well, this would be great yeah. to actually making it happen? Yeah, I mean, we we just hit our second anniversary it was in mid September uh, that we from launch. We formed in May of 2018, and that was preceded by a year of relatively quiet, frantic work on the part of a number of people, but very much Andy Cates. Um, who's still board chair and kind of my business partner in this, and um, and me especially, you know, just and, and other people, um, and it really came about because of you know uh, scripts. And then Media General, then Gannett were cutting the CA so much, and it was really frustrating people. And you know, um, again, I hate, I, I don't want to pick on anybody over there. I really don't. Like Mark Russell, the editor over there, is a great guy, and just a just a veteran journalist. So this was more about the corporate ownership, you know, and the decisions they were making. And when they, they were really heavy into that Tennessee network, you know, where they were, they were running a lot of Nashville, Knoxville content here and Memphis content there. And they really have pulled back on that in part, I think, because we launched and we criticized them so much for it. But, um, and they got, they heard it from their readers, you know. Um, but anyway, so it was just this sense that, whoa, you know, if you look at the trajectory of where the commercial appeal was going, it, it really looked like it was gonna become a kind of bureau to the Tennessean, right? I mean, they, they were cutting and cutting and cutting. Um, there was a big cut of almost 20 uh, after Gannett took ownership, which was a third of the staff in Memphis. There was all that centralization and regionalization. And, you know, some people were just really worried, Andy very much so. And Andy and I had been friends for 20 years, but had never really worked together. Um, we would talk about journalism a lot. I was running the Daily News then, and we kind of carved out our little niche of business and politics with the newsroom of, you know, seven or eight. And, um, and Andy and I would talk about journalism all the time. And I, I, I can't quite remember when, I think it's when Gannett did that big cut, when they cut a third of the people in the, the Memphis office, which I think was 2017. That's when Andy called me and said, hey, let's have lunch and talk about newspapers. And I realized it was going more from, here's this guy who's a friend, who's obviously very civically involved. People don't know Andy has been involved in the, the, the green line. He's been involved in Soulsville stacks. I mean, his brother uh, renovated, um, you know, cross town. His family's just been incredibly civic minded and generous. And, but he, again, we didn't ever really work together. We just had been friends and, and basically tormented each other um, and just constantly ridiculing each other and our feelings. <laughs> and so suddenly we went to Cafe Keo, it seems like a hundred years ago, downtown and had coffee and lunch. And, and he, I could tell this was different, that he was serious about it. He told me, I guess then that they, he and a group of, of local people had tried to buy the CA more just as a civic investment, not as a, some, a moneymaker to try and stem the bleeding. He jokes, you know, thank God we didn't, thank God they didn't sell it to us because we didn't realize how bad a business it was. Um, 
and that began this kind of exploration of business models and what could we do to launch a local site? Could it be print? Could it be print and online? Um, could, would it be for-profit, non-profit? And we ultimately ended up on the model of a, a online only, you know, um, non-profit, although we try to run it like a business in the sense that, you know, we have a paywall, we sell advertising, and we are on a glide path, a goal of being financially sustainable on advertising and subscriptions by um, uh, the end of our fifth year, so that we're not constantly fundraising, you know. Um, and so that, that and there's a lot of nonprofit news sites uh, launching. We inadvertently are the largest local news site, online local news site in, this, in the country, even ones, there's some statewide ones or some network ones, but it, at a city level, um, we're, we're certainly the, the, the largest nonprofit one out there, um, which we didn't, doesn't really matter. It just kind of speaks to how screwed up the industry is. So one of the um, laments that I've had lately, and, and again, this, and I, 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 it, it's, it's criticism, I guess, uh, or an observation that's somewhat negative, but I don't mean it in a negative way. You know, going back to kind of the, the, the past, the golden days, when I, when I first started in politics, you know, there were half a dozen to a dozen people who covered local politics from, you know, from the legislature, you know, the CA had a, uh, a dedicated person in Nashville uh, to uh, city hall in the county building. And over time that has eroded and I know you guys have uh, Bill Drees and others, and Bill is uh, uh, tremendous. I, I don't want to start naming names, but Bill is someone yeah. who I think is just tremendous at what he does. Uh, what, what plans do y'all have to, or do you have plans to, to bolster that? And what's your yeah. thought about local political reporting? Um, we do have plans to bolster it. I will tell you, though, you know, I, I joked about or talked about being a reporter out of college in 1990 and, and uh, covering again Deep River, Connecticut, which probably had a population of five or six thousand, and I would that and that part of Connecticut is kind of halfway between everywhere. It's basically the middle of of Connecticut. I would go to um, board of selectmen meetings there, and you could sometimes have as many as four or five other reporters. You would have the Middletown, Connecticut paper would have a reporter. The sometimes the New London paper, sometimes the New Haven paper, and sometimes somebody from a local TV station. Um, there was even a radio reporter back because back, you know, we're both old enough to remember when AM radio actually had dedicated um, uh, news casters and news reporters at a local level. And now that's really exclusively pretty much, I don't want to insult anybody, but almost only, you know, NPR and public radio that does that. I don't know. how Bill Drees got his start was in. Yeah. Yeah. Bill was, yeah. Bill was a, Bill was a radio reporter before he was a news reporter, a newspaper reporter. So it is fallen. I mean, long story short, we have, um, uh, you know, Bill covers a thousand things for us. We have just made some shifts in terms of our staffing or actually hiring a number of reporters. We'll end up with um, probably five people in our metro, um, uh, what we call metro. So that'll include everything. But it's really more than that because if you include the suburbs, we've got two people out in the suburbs, plus Clay Bailey as editor of that. We've got two people covering neighborhoods and schools making sure, including North and South Memphis areas that are really historically undercovered, except for crime and, you know, the bad things that happen. Um, then we'll, we've added uh, Don Wade, who's covered sports and business, all kinds of things in Memphis for many, many years, is shifted over to a full-time um, uh, 
um, kind of enterprise level reporter. So he did a big piece on policing and a, he'll did a, he did a big piece on schools reopening and he'll do even more of that going forward. And then we're, we're hoping to hire um, uh, another Metro reporter who's just doing whatever comes up and then an investigative reporter. And so we have a partnership. Some people know the name uh, Mark Perisquia. Some politicians quiver uh, in their boots when I say, uh, not you, of course, Alan, um, but, or anyone you've ever worked with. But uh, Mark has done a lot of really deep investigative journalism and he still works with us via uh, the U of M, um, but we want another person on staff to do investigative deep dive type stuff. Um, with that said, we, we'd love to have even more than that, you know, I mean, and just even just in a city of Memphis, you know, you've got a city government, a county government. Um, again, we've got somebody who's full-time criminal justice, not covering so much last night's crime, but covering, you know, juvenile justice center and, and uh, the, the district attorney's office and, and the jail and sheriffing, Sheriff uh, Bonner and so on and so forth. But it takes a lot of people, you know, and, it, and there's a lot going on and there's a lot of money. Um, and we've, you know, the school board alone, you know, we, we have Linda Moore now covering the school board. We also rely on an outside uh, organization called Chalkbeat. Their folks do really great work. Um, but I think, you know, again, let's go back. The CA at 10 years ago had 250 people in its newsroom. It had a Washington bureau. It had a gardening section of, you know, five, six, seven people or something like that, I think. Um, and a lot of people covering city, county, and, 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 and government. And that's hugely important. And, you know, we will never get to 200 people. I hope someday we get to about 45 people in the newsroom. But, you know, that'll take some time. Well, there's just no substitute for those beat reporters who get to know, uh, you know, like Jimmy Covington, um, yeah. knew county government inside and out. And, you know, there were lots of times when I, I think he, uh, altered the course of events, not because that's what he was setting out to do, but just shining a light on um, transactions that were being considered yeah. or other proposals being considered. And I think it's an important function yeah. that journalists provide. Well, I mean, let's think about just the, the MLGW TVA uh, situation right now. We, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd probably have an ex a reporter dedicated to that issue full time you know, doing deep explainers on the options, doing quick hit reporting on the votes. Um, and I think we've done a good job on that story, but it just that alone, and you think about, uh, I mean, I'm not gonna weigh in on the politics or this or that, but it is objectively speaking, a monumental decision and it needs to be explored. And, and there are a tremendous number of interests, both sides, all sides. Um, and, you know, again, if, if this were, the New York Times, you know, they would have, you know, they've got a whole group of people who cover the Pentagon or a whole group of people who cover, you know, Congress. And um, we are splitting that TVA MLGW story between multiple people. And when we're doing our best with it, right? But it's, it's, um, uh, it's not enough, you know? And, you know, the other thing about Memphis right now, because the CA, um, although they, they've cut some from when we launched, I mean, they still do have 27 people and they, they have some really great journalists over there and, and competition's a good thing, right? So we wanna beat them, they wanna beat us. The Flyer and Memphis Magazine does, I mean, Toby Sells, the news editor of there does a great job covering you know, both daily news and deep dive looks. And they're a liberal, tend to have the liberal look and that's just, it's not gonna work for some people, but they also do a lot of just straight up reporting. Um, you've got the Business Journal with, what, five people doing reporting there. Um, you've got High Ground. You've got Chalkbeat. 
Memphis is actually is a lot better off than other cities of its size in terms of the number of journalists are here. And that doesn't include radio and TV, you know, I wouldn't get into that part. So, but what if a bunch of that went away? And that, that, is, that has been the trend is just the, the progressive cutting of local journalists. Um, you know, and I know people in the mayor's office now who will say off the record, you know, we're, we need to be held accountable. You know, I mean, we need to be, we need, we need that. That's important. Um, we need to hear what people are saying about what we're putting forward. I mean, social media isn't enough, you know, in terms of a conduit of public feedback. So um, I think, again, I, I love what we've been able to do in two years, but I, I, I do think, you know, we need 10 more people to do it really right, you know, and that's not in the cards at this point. Has, has your platform been received the way you thought it would be received? All in all, yes. I, I actually think we've we've grown faster than I originally thought. Um, we've we've uh, become. Um, I think we've we've we we made the the strategic decision to hire experienced journalists so that we could get up to speed right away. We didn't want to import a bunch of nothing. Not that there's anything wrong. We've hired some people from out of town since launch, but to get up to speed, we had lots of veteran journalists like Bill Drees and others who who knew the city and could just start reporting on it right away. That created an impression. You know, when we did the, some stuff about the two-year anniversary, a lot of people said to me, you know, it seems like you guys have been around a lot longer than two years, you know, because you sort of, and I, I think that I take that as a compliment and it speaks to the experienced journalists we have and the sense that we are so, you know, narrowly focused on Memphis, right, on the Memphis area. We don't do national politics. We don't do, we, we don't do a lot of other stuff that you see in other papers. And I think that has um, been well received. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, we, we are, I think all in all, we're, we're, we're ahead of where I thought we would be and, and, and doing better than I thought. I, I thought we'd do well. I wouldn't have gotten into it if I didn't think that, but I think we were kind of ahead of where I thought we'd be. Can you think of a, a story or, or coverage that you, you think of as the signature uh, coverage for the Daily Memphian that Maybe that got that got you over a, a new kid on the block kind of hump. Um, I think honestly, I don't think there was a story. I think it was the sheer volume of it that people. I mean, one of the great compliments I got was from a friend of mine who, a couple of weeks after launch, he said, "You know, I um, I, I look at it. I get that morning email, and I look at, and I, even if I just skim it, he said I feel like for the first time in forever." I kind of know what's going on in Memphis, from politics to the business community to everything. I kind of had this feel that, wow, you're, you're, you're covering the breadth of the city. And that was really when we first launched, and we've added 10 people since then. Um, I think, I think we, we knew our goal was to not have, like, there are a lot of new, and often they are nonprofit, local sites that pop up and just do investigative, or just do arts and culture, or just do business. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Andy and I, we used to sort of, we got to stop making this joke. We always said we wanted to drop a bomb on the problem. Like it wasn't enough to launch a niche site. We wanted to launch a full-blown, full-featured, everything in the city that we could possibly get to within our budget type site. And I think that meant, that approach has been incredibly well-received that, that people can read about a new restaurant opening or right now often closing, or they can read about the city like we're talking about, or they can see what's going on with FedEx, or they see what's happening in a, you know, their neighborhood. And again, I'm not saying we cover 100% of the stories that are going on in Memphis. We don't. 
hopefully someday we get there. But I think people like the broad-based nature of what we do and um, more so even than I would have thought, you know. Well, if things were different, they wouldn't be the same. <laughs> exactly. But, but I've often thought that if it wasn't for the Daily Memphian, I think the commercial appeal would be uh, much reduced. I think the competition there has been good for both both uh, entities. Yeah, I mean, when we when we launched and we took, you know, we didn't take exclusively people from the CA, but we took a bunch of people and obviously some of the biggest name people like Jeff and Jennifer and Chris Harrington and so on. And they not only got approval to replace those positions, they actually added five positions. And they were one of, if not the only Gannett paper that year. Gannett has a kind of tradition of doing cuts at the end of the year, and most papers share in those cuts, and that's been going on for a long time. Uh, Memphis was spared those cuts and, again, added five people. And that, that's great for Memphis, and it's great for local journalism. And, um, and they cut back on, um, and I know that five was explicitly because of us, that the headquarters said to them, no, nope, you got to, you got to, you got to, you know, go, not go to war because that sounds ugly, but you got to really compete with these guys. Got to compete. What's that? You got to compete. Yeah, you got to compete. So that's a great thing for Memphis. Now, the sad thing is that since then they've cut, um, but they haven't, as, as I see it, they haven't gone back to the sort of Tennessee network model. There's much less of that. That's good for Memphis, you know, and, um, and I think is, is an anomaly, my sense is, within the system. Because they do that, those regional networks in a lot of, they do it in Michigan. And they have this Michigan, I think. And they have some other cities, where states, where they share content all over the place. And, you know, it's not very well received in a lot of places. But they don't have any reasons to stop doing it because there isn't a competitor that's popped up. I've been surprised, getting Andy talking about this, I've been surprised there haven't been more local news sites pre-COVID that launched in competition to not just Gannett, the Gatehouse, which is now Gannett, um, McClatchy, the Tribune, Lee Enterprises, these big, big um, uh, uh, corporate chains that own so many local newspapers. There really haven't been that many really big broad-based news sites that have launched up in, in response to all that cutting. And now with COVID, I don't know that there will be, but eventually I would think that we, the Memp Daily Memphian will not be alone. We will be less of an anomaly, I hope, um, nationally. Well, speaking of COVID, one, one decision that you made that I thought was an excellent decision uh, was to uh, put your COVID coverage, or at least some of yeah. it, on the outside of your paywalls uh, as yeah. a community service. Talk about how, how did that decision come about, and are you, uh, I, I don't want to throw you too much of a softball, but is that something that you're, that you're glad you did in hindsight? Very glad they did. And, and to be fair, we've actually now moved most of it back behind the paywall since COVID is sort of part of our lives now. We do uh, anything kind of that we just, and this is true of any story, if we just view, you know, if there was a tornado coming or there was a some terrible thing, we would put public service sort of, there's a certain point at which you put it outside the paywall. Um, we've decided to move the bulk of our COVID coverage inside the paywall uh, because we do need to pay for ourselves, right? We got to pay for this journalism and these journalists. Um, and it's a balancing act. But the daily number update, that's outside. And again, certain stories will, that we just feel like are too important, we'll put them outside. We, we did it. Uh, Ronnie Ramos, our, our executive editor, and I talked about putting it behind the paywall. We waited a day or two, which is so funny to think about. But we just didn't know. You know, everything was so insane. We didn't know what was going on. We still had it behind the paywall. 
Um, and I remember being in a room with him because this is where we're still in person and looking at each other going, we're screwing this up. This needs to be outside the paywall. And he ran out of the room and told the desk, moved all that stuff out. Um, it, it's generated a ton of traffic for us. I mean, that's sad, but true. Um, and it, it exposed us to a lot of people probably who hadn't read us. We, we are very proud of ourselves and you and I are you know, kind of, you're into politics and into news. So you, you knew about us on day one. Right. There's still lots of people who don't fully understand who we are, or what we do. And so it's, it, you know, I don't like it, uh, but I don't like COVID and I don't like the shutdowns and all that, but, but it's, it's, it's created um, more exposure for us. And we've had a lot of people sign up for free emails and, and just, you know, follow us on social media. So all that peripheral stuff, just from a pure business point of view, ultimately begins to lead into subscriptions. And, and paid subscriptions, which is kind of our lifeblood. So most papers around the country, not all, but most of them went, made it free and it was the right thing to do. But at some point you realize, you know, this thing isn't going away, unfortunately. And, and we've got to find ways to pay for those stories. Well, uh, these days you, uh, you've got to, I've got to ask this question. Sure. Uh, the pandemic, uh, what I'm really interested in is, is how has it affected your business? Um, and are there any things that you've innovated that you think are going to survive uh, the pandemic because they're just good ideas? Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we lost some advertising in the summer. Um, really, you know, anybody who was a things to do, go to do something in person type advertiser. You know, I don't want to name any advertisers. Sure. They all put their advertising on hold because they weren't open, right? Um, and then we had a couple of big advertisers put their advertising on hold and it forced us to get out there and find more smaller advertisers. And, and we rebounded from that really quickly. And I'm, I'm proud of that on the business side of stuff we do. Um, editorially, um, you know, we've gotten smarter about how we do emails and what and tailoring emails to people. And that's something obviously that will continue. I will tell you one thing we've really struggled with and I get criticism for, and, and I got an email today from somebody who was mad at me. Um, we, we tried very hard because we, we, we want to just focus on members and when we launch and that's what we focus on include. And then that includes the impact of the state house on Memphis and it includes the impact of say, a, a trade war on FedEx, which is headquartered in Memphis. So we're not blind to the outside world, but you know, we're, we're a Memphis-focused news organization. Once COVID became so politicized and the reaction became so politicized and it became a kind of, um, um, for many people, it's a left-right or a Trump-Biden or whatever kind of thing, we suddenly got our straight-up news coverage of the the health department's response. Just, this is what they did. This is what they're saying. This is what they're gonna be doing next. Suddenly was seen in a political light in a way our coverage had not been before. Um, and that has caused lots of just, I, I honestly don't have a great response to it because um, you know we're just covering what the health department's doing. Sometimes we do deep dives where we do bring in other experts who say you could do this better. Um, but it did cause us, and then our opinionators, um, are, we, we had to be more clear about what's opinion. And that's something that all news sites need to do. And we, 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 because we don't do that much opinion in normal times, we suddenly were like, you know what? We're not making it clear that Jeff Calkins is an opinion writer. People, when Jeff writes a feel good story about the Tigers, like the last minute win yesterday, people don't view that as opinion. They view that as him celebrating this incredible moment in Memphis football, right? But it is opinion. 
Well, once there were no sports, Jeff is a columnist and Jeff is Jeff, and he wanted to write about the impact of COVID on sports and culture, or, you know, our life, our community. And he was very, and he is very anti-Trump and does not, does not, anti-Trump's response to how this has happened, President Trump. Well, I think I took it for granted that everyone understood that was just, that's just Jeff's opinion. If you don't want to read it, don't read Jeff's columns. But it really, it, it caused some, some real negative reaction among people. Um, and that's fine, but I realized we need to be more clear about labeling it as opinion. We're not going to stop Jeff from expressing his opinion on the Tigers or on COVID's impact on this city, but we got to be really clear about that. And, and then we've also, you know, people don't, a lot of people don't know that Jeff tends to be liberal in his opinions uh, when he's writing about sports, but suddenly you get into an issue that's kind of national and political and he's liberal leaning and then Otis is liberal and is explicitly liberal leaning. And Chris had a, Harrington had similar takes to Jeff. And suddenly I look at our site and I'm like, oh, shoot, we got too many, we're not balanced, right? We don't, we didn't have the conservative voices balancing out what they were saying. And, you know, I, I will take that criticism. I don't, we've added some writers and, and uh, uh, a similar thing happened with Black Lives Matter and the protest, which became a local issue of national, that was a, a political issue nationally. And I think, you know, we've, we've had to look, we're shifting around how we solicit and get op-eds and guest columns and, and again, trying out different people writing for us. And um, um, I think that, that, was a, that caught us off guard because I didn't know, I did not expect that COVID would become such a national political issue. Maybe I was naive, but I don't, did you? I mean, when you were sitting around in April, you're, did you sort of look at this and go, oh boy, this thing's going to get real political real quick. Well, as you may recall, at that time I was on, uh, I guess I still technically am, was on the, uh, the mayor's team uh, response team and was doing a lot of liaison work with the state. Yeah. And in April, you could start to feel it getting yeah. uh, a little uh, little partisan, uh, but not, not nearly as much as, as it has. And yeah. I think I'm surprised that it's continued particularly in light of numbers. I mean, you, you know, mask wearing, for example, um, it, where, where people wear masks, the numbers are down. And that's not a Republican statement. It's not a Democratic statement, urban, rural. It just is what it is. And I have been surprised how people on both sides um, have held to uh, opinions that they had since February in light of hard data. Yeah, uh, and I and I and I'm surprised by that too. Yeah, and, and you know it's sad because it makes it you know there's a lot there's an increasing amount of data for instance that's showing that schools K through 12 schools are not super spreader type environments the way people really fear. And that's important because I think everyone wants kids back in school, right? And and it's really really I think we've done a lot of reporting on it, but boy is it just awful that the suburban schools have been able to be in hybrid mode and the private schools are in hybrid mode and the legacy, you know, city schools are not. And so, you know, the 90% of black kids, the 90% of their population is black, um, isn't in class. And I think everybody understands that for most kids being in class is way better than doing zoom school. And, but we're so, are we able, are we going to be able to look at that data that's coming out more studies that, that the, that the risks are, are actually, it looks like pretty low for kids to be in school, like surprisingly low for a lot of people. But other people would be like, well, I told you so. And they just, they view it through this angry, you know, partisan lens. 
And does that blind us like masks to making smart decisions over the next six to 12 months? Cause we're, we're going to, this is going to be with us for a long time. So, um, and again, how that plays out in our reporting on what the scientists said, and then our raving opinions about what, you know, the government did, you know, and that for us is this, this, this work in progress. Well, let me, um, let me switch gears a little bit and talk yeah. about behind the headlines. Yeah. I know you're in, involved in and uh, yeah. uh, you're in your 10th year. Yeah, we did somewhere in the middle of the pandemic. We crossed 10 years. We sort of lost track of it. And that's another um, area that that field may be a little more crowded in terms of competition. Cause I know channel three uh, has a show and uh, Richard Ransom has a show. Yeah. Uh, and it, of course is your show. Why do you think, um, why do you think behind the headlines has been as successful as it's been? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I really don't know. I, I know I never watched that first season again because I was like a deer in the headlights as a high school kid. So I think if I'd ever watched that again, I probably would have quit. Um, so there's that part. The, I, I think because, you know, frankly, there's a, I have this joke, but it's true. In, in normal times, particularly, people come up to me periodically and they'll say, you know, I must be the most, live the most boring life but I watch your show at Friday night at seven every week. And I, and that's all we do. We just get some takeout or we just sit and we watch it. And we are so boring. And I always joke, you all should get together and have a watch party because apparently a lot of people are watching, you know, some, however many there are. And, and I think it is a testament to not for anything I did, but that there's a real interest in pretty by and large, pretty serious, pretty wonky, pretty detailed discussion of issues of real serious impact to uh, Memphis. So we've done shows on things as serious, and you know, we did three shows in a row with various parties, people involved with the, the MLGW TVA thing. We've done lots of kind of out there shows on, you know, urban planning and the future of walkability and stuff that I love to talk about. I don't know how many people stay tuned in for those, but they're, they're fun to talk about. Like we get decent feedback on them. Um, people are interested. And it was part of, honestly, I think I said this in a column I did when we hit our two-year anniversary at Daily Memphian, it was part of my confidence that there was a real interest in, in serious, purely local impact, you know, kind of driven, you know, or what's the local impact type news um, that wasn't sensationalized, um, that, that allowed people of varying points of view to kind of talk and give their opinions in a forum where you wouldn't feel attacked, you wouldn't feel like caught off guard. You wouldn't feel edited down into a soundbite. And so it, it continues to work and credit to KNO for continuing to give, give us time to do it every week uh, in that spot. And, um, and Bill, you know, you can't say enough how much we mentioned Bill earlier. I mean, having Bill there saving my butt on a regular basis, when I get out of my skis kind of talking, and Bill can kind of bring it in and say, no, Eric, that goes back to something that happened in 1972, you know, and his sort of historical factual knowledge is, is invaluable to, to the way that show works. So, and you've been a guest, what? Didn't we talk about sewers? Did we talk about sewers? I think we talked about uh, sewers and soybean fields and uh, the annexation. And, <laughs> it's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> you know, it was, it, I mean, it really, you know, um, Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local. And uh, Jim Strickland uh, says city government is the only level of government, the city and county government, are the only level of government that people actually expect to work. Yeah. So, 
people expect their trash to be picked up, their sewers to work, their policing and their fire departments to work, et cetera. And they don't as much uh, expect that kind of level of service from state or federal government with all due respect to them. And yep. so it's, it's great to have people like you covering uh, county and municipal government and just what happens locally uh, because ultimately I think people are more interested in that than they are in some omnibus bill in Congress that may or may not affect them. Right, right. And uh, yeah, and, and I wish they were more engaged in federal and national politics. I mean, but, and I don't think you're saying otherwise, but yeah, this is the stuff that really impacts them. And, and you know, I, I've been proud of some of the, I mean, back to school consolidation when and deconsolidation and some of the shows we did on that. And we did show after show after show. And and I felt like we were at various times we've really contributed to the public conversation about some really, really big issues like that, like the MLGW TVA thing, which we'll be doing more shows on that. And and that probably, you know, actually uh, Mr. Strickland's coming on this week. You know, I think he's I think he's shooting for the record of uh, most appearances. It was um, I don't know. Oh, Dorsey Hobson, I think, had the record, the former superintendent. And, um, you know, but. Uh, anyway, I, I, I appreciate you saying that, and it's very edifying um, to be able to just go on there and ask questions and, and have people say that they listen and they feel like it's worth it and it, they feel informed from it. So it's it's been good in that way. Well, Eric, I sure appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed uh, uh, talking uh, about the Daily Memphian, particularly with you. you. Uh, uh, keep up the good work, and uh, yeah. thanks for your time. All right. Thanks, Alan. I really appreciate uh, it. This is uh, Alan Crone. With the Crone Law Firm, uh, Ask Allen Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please share us and like us on social media. Uh, share the uh, uh, email if you get us by email. Uh, spread the word, uh, particularly about the great new great work that is being done at the Daily Memphian. Uh, Eric, thanks again, and we'll uh, I'll see you around campus. Yeah, absolutely.